Well, church, next week end is our missions weekend. It really starts on Wednesday when the we have about 30 to 40 missionaries that are coming, and they'll be leading our Bible studies, our community groups. Next weekend is one of the highlights of the life of our church year. It's going to be uh, Friday night, a big banquet that you sign up for, Saturday morning seminars, Sunday uh, Bible study, preaching, community group, and then a giant celebration here Sunday night where we really pray for these people that have gone out to the ends of the earth, some of them serving locally. That's going to be next week. Please, please, unless you are providentially uh, out of pocket, please, please be here. Providentially out of pocket means that you've gone to Mars, okay? Just, I want, you should be here, okay? So let's pray for that and a couple other things, Lord. We ask that you would uh, bless Lord, this missions weekend, that there would be a great um, ongoing cry from our hearts to understand the heartbeat of God, which is to impact the nations and to see men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation brought into faith. We pray, Lord, uh, also that, that the word of God would not return void from last Wednesday, the wild game banquet, when all these men heard the gospel. Lord, you'd work in hearts even this hour, uh, this day to show men the glory of Christ and the forgiveness of sin through the work of the eternal God on the cross. We pray for our campus outreach retreat weekend and the 250 students, most from this church, who are, who are there. And uh, that as they go through their last worship experience in the next two hours, that you'd speak to them. So, Lord, thank you that you've called us to be part of the kingdom of God. We name the name of Jesus. So do that, Lord, in in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And this church uh, heard and received the word of God, the apostolic message, with, with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep assurance. They received it with the joy given by the Holy Spirit in spite of persecution. They imitated the apostolic testimony of Paul, Timothy, and Silas. And because of all of these things, the Bible says their message rang out from them. It exploded from them all over Macedonia and Achaia, or Asia Minor. And Paul says this, Therefore we have no need to say anything about what has happened among you. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So one reason the word went forth with power is in part because of this little paradigm that was part of the fabric of this church, and it should be of every church. And it's three steps, and I'm going to be preaching on sequentially. He says, first of all, he says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. His name is Jesus, the one who rescues us, thirdly, from the coming wrath. But today, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Hear this. Repenting and rejoicing should go hand in hand. 
we always are in the process of repenting and turning to God from idols because our hearts are idol-making factories. There's a little book called 1 John. It's near the end of the New Testament. And in 1 John, it has 105 verses. And the last verse of the book, John just gives this little statement. He says this. Well, first of all, he says, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to habitually live in sin. The, the, the reign of sin has been broken in the heart of the child of God. He says that we also know that we are children of God and that the whole world there's a, that is under the control of the evil one. There's an evil ethos in the world, he says. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we Know him who is true. And then he says this. Dear, dear children, beloved, keep yourselves from idols. Present tense. Keep yourselves from idols. Our hearts are idol-making factories. We, We deal with that. So we've got a present tense. Continually turn to the living and true God from idols. The book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament Ezekiel's getting ready to pronounce God's mind on what has gone on in that particular church or a particular group of people. Listen to this, just five verses, just listen. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me, and then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. These men have set up idols in their hearts. Hear that? In their hearts. And put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart. And puts a stumbling block before his face. And then goes to a prophet. I the Lord will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. Now listen to this verse. This is the heart of God. Let's keep a couple things here. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have made, who have all deserted me for their idols. The heart of God is to continually recapture our hearts. To continually recapture our hearts. If you'd been there that day, I'm sure when they heard that you've become idolaters, they say, idolaters? What idolatry? We have no stone God or wood God. We don't bow down to fertility plants. We, we don't, like in our context, we don't worship a God that's got the body of a man and the head of an elephant called Ganesh in Hinduism. We don't, what idols? And he says this, no, they're idols in your heart. Idols in your heart. There are, there are things that you are bowing down to in your mind that have taken the place of a relationship with the living God. So repenting, turning, and rejoicing should go together. There's a story in Luke 19. It's a story about a man that many of us have heard about named Zacchaeus. It says Zacchaeus was a short man. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. All right, so let's put those together. He was a short man, a chief tax collector. Therefore, you know, the smallest guy in the class, last guy picked for kickball. 
short, short, you know, small stature, so he's the brunt of the jokes. But Zacchaeus is good at math. And Zacchaeus learns how to do a ledger sheet. And Zacchaeus learns how to hide facts and how to, how to kind of skim off the top. And he's so good at it that the occupational forces give him a test. He passes with flying colors and they hire him to be a tax collector for the occupational forces called the Romans. He is, he is so good. He's not only a tax collector, he becomes a chief tax collector, which means that he makes lots of money, which means that he skims off the top which means that he's crafty, which means he lives in a nice house in a zip code where nobody comes to dinner parties. None of his countrymen want anything to do with him. He's a minion of the occupation of forces, and he's a crook, and he is a thief. So this small guy hears about Jesus coming, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree because he wants to see Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us this. This is my thoughts. Well, one reason he climbed the tree is that he was small. He wanted to see Christ. He heard about this miracle worker, this great teacher. The other reason is if you're a chief tax collector, you don't let yourself get trapped in a mob of your countrymen. You know? Because you may get, accidentally get a nose meeting an elbow. You may get a punch in the kidney. You may get stomped on or worse. So he probably avoided the crowds. So he's in the tree. Jesus is walking. He's up there with all the kids. This is what happens. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter among themselves He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And so they all kind of went to Zacchaeus' house. First time they've been in his house. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And immediately there was a long line out the door. Says this, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. You see, when salvation comes, your life changes. And Zacchaeus did this knowing that this man spoke with power and authority and he healed people, and there was a magnetism and a dynamic about his life. But he didn't understand the sin bearing Savior who is eternally God who would rise from the dead, who would ascend to the right hand of God the Father, who would pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church. How much more, if you're a Christ follower, how much more should we rejoice and repent simultaneously? See, our repentance is not fear-based repentance. It is worship-based repentance that says, I beheld the glory of Christ. And turning, listen, turning from idols is continuous. We are never done with turning from idols to God, the true and living God. We're we're never done with that because our hearts are idol-making factories. And the the idols that, that we have so often are insidious and they're silent and they just take over. I remind you of the parable of the sower where, you know, the seed was choked by the weeds. And Jesus says those weeds are worries and riches 
and pleasures. There's nothing wrong with riches and pleasures. Except when they become ultimate. And they choke the word of God. Worries chokes the word of God because instead of thanksgiving, we don't trust God. And so this is such an incredibly important passage because we have to deal with it every day. In fact, I think of these two passages in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9. And you you hear these things so often you're going, yeah, okay, but just listen. Try to listen with new ears. Luke 9, 23 And he said to them all, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. You've got to deal with it daily. Then he says this. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Daily you take up the cross. Daily you deal with the idols of your heart. Daily you go to the the cross. Daily. And then Luke 14, quite frankly, if this had not come from the lips of Christ, I would think they came from the lips of a megalomaniac. A Mein Kampf. Maybe Hitler said this is Mein Kampf. Or maybe you read this in Mal's little red book or something. But, but listen. Verse 25 and following. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Now, this is a large crowd buster. What he's about to say is how you get rid of large crowds. Okay? He turns to large crowds and says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, and his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life... He cannot be my disciple. Well, that's the way you lose the crowds. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In the next breath, he says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, the compost pile. It is just thrown out. The question is, how do you retain your saltiness, brothers and sisters in Christ? Is to make Christ supreme. Is to make the kingdom and the pursuit of Christ primary and exclusively number one. Because whenever anything else intrudes in that pursuit, God isn't honored. And we don't have the joy of the Lord. That's why we have to deal with this every day of our lives. Because our hearts are idol-making factories. Or I think of the Ten Commandments, the First and Second Commandment. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. No, no, nothing. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the Lord says, you know, don't bow down to it. He says, because, because there is an environment of, of idolatry, and deceit 
and pain that you'll build to the third and fourth generation, or you can have my love transcending down to the thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. He says, you know, it's comparison and contrast. Now, let me say this. There are, there are people here today who grew up in Christian homes of grace and nurturance and care. Yes, you grew up with junk because we're all sinners, but, but, but you never doubted that you were loved. You never doubted that you were cared for. You were taught the things of God, and that's called an environment of grace, and thanks be to God. There are others here today who grew up in homes where there was anger, accusation, where people were liars and abusers, where substance abuse was rife, where it was deceitful, where it was horrific. And I I charge you under the banner of Jesus as people who are followers of Christ, establish a new home. You stand up and you say, you know, I am not going to repeat the sins of the fathers. We are marching under the banner of King Jesus. We have no king but Jesus. And this will be an environment where I live of grace and mercy and forgiveness and laughter and obedience under the hand of the Holy Spirit. That's your birthright. That's who you are. That's who you're called to be. So, so my, my question is, why, 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 why does God, why is he so strict here? Good grief. Why? Because God wants to get the glory and because no, God knows that when he's honored and when he's worshiped, we are the beneficiaries of the, his shalom that he pours in our life. Here's the way C.S. Lewis says it. says it so well. God made us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. So this is who we are. So, so we, we deal every day, every, every day, we deal with idols and we run to the cross. We worship God. It is so easy for idols to get a hold of your heart, whether it's your job or your academics or your marriage or your children. And you go on and on and on. See, these are good, good things. When they're bad things, we say, yeah, yeah, you know, what? yeah, that's horrible. I'm not. But these are good things. You see, idols... For those of you who are from, south, from the south, idols are like kudzu. They just keep on coming back. Can't get rid of it. And, and so, see, and see we, we just drift. There's a quote from, from Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan writes, the pilgrim calls out, you are never out of the gunshot of the devil. I just love that. You're never out of the devil's gunshot. And that's why, for example, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that, the writer says that, says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I want, I want to t- tell you this. I, I, did a, I did a very bad job in the last hour, I think. I just didn't. So. When it comes to this whole issue of idolatry and, and, and obedience, 
There's a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods, and it talks about uh, money, sex, and power. So you just, when it comes to this whole issue of, 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 of obedience and idolatry, I, I do believe that there are some people who are well-meaning Christ followers who say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the white-knuckle experience. I'm going to hang in there and I'm going to do what I need to do because life is a vapor and I will soon be dead. For example, money. The Bible says very clearly to honor the Lord with your money. The Bible says command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. And so we believe that tithing is a biblical principle. But the Bible also says God loves a cheerful giver. So giving should be done not out of white-knuckled duty. Giving should be done out of reflecting on the greatness of what Jesus has done for me on the cross and what He continues to do for me every day of my life. Or the example of sexuality. Well, I'm going to be faithful in marriage. The marriage bed should be undefiled, the Bible says. I'm going to be faithful to my spouse and I'm going to hang in there. Well, Yes, but I think we should celebrate the goodness of God. It says, God, my body is the temple of the living God. I want to honor you with everything that I am because of who you are in me. You see, see the difference? It is a difference between white knuckling and obeying out of duty, which is, which is okay, but to me it's much more superlative to obey out of, out of worship and, and gladness. E- example, Augustine wrote the Confessions. If you're going to read the Confessions, only read part of it. Read the ninth book and the tenth book. But then the ninth book is when he comes to faith in Christ. And he's been struggling and struggling to, of really letting, letting go of his passions, letting go of his immorality. He didn't want to let go of it. And then he says this. I'll just read part of it. Thy, your gift was to negate what I willed and to will what you willed in me. He said, you showed me that the yoke was easy, and my shoulders took on the light burden. O Christ, my help and my redeemer. How sweet did it at once become to me to let go of these follies. And what I feared to be parted from was now a joy to part with, for you cast them forth from me. You true and highest sweetness. You cast them forth, and from that you entered into me. You are sweeter than all pleasures, though though not to flesh and blood. You're brighter than all light, but more hidden than all depths. Higher than all honor. He's just laboring to say, I see the sweetness of Christ. The beauty of Christ. The glory of Christ. See, when I get hold of this, when I struggle with this, but when I really get hold of this, I get rid of idols. I just, my heart, I say, Lord, my heart's an idol-making factory. I've got to taste it's like First Peter where Peter says get rid of all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander and like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word now that you have tasted that the Lord is good or beneficial 
or glorious. And that, that, that's... We've, we've, church, we've got to see the greatness of Christ. Because when you see the greatness and the beauty and the grandeur and the wonder of the triune God who is forever and ever and ever and who the fullness of time became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he poured out the Holy Spirit. When you see that, that that's, the, that's, that's the road of obedience out of joy. Show you this. This is a great man, Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie came. His his family from Scotland. He came to the U.S. at age thirteen. His family sold everything they had to buy tickets to come to the U.S. Settled in the Pittsburgh area. He got some jobs as a child. Saved money. Got involved in the telegraph industry. Made a lot of money. Got involved in management and in the steel industry and made. What would they be billions of dollars? At the age of 33, he wrote this. So of his biography says, he says, man must have an idol. He was not a Christ follower. In fact, he didn't go to church in the last couple of years of his life. And he said, the last thing he wrote about God, he said, God is an infinite, eternal energy from which all things proceed. So he wasn't, he wasn't a Christian at all. His God was progress, he said. But anyway. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. He's 33. He's making a lot of money. No idol more debasing than the worship of money has ever hit man. Whatever, whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately, therefore, should I, should I be careful to choose a life which will be the most elevating in character for me. To continue much longer to be overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time will eventually degrade me beyond any hope of permanent recovery. He says, in two years I will resign the pursuit of wealth and until that time I'll give myself to systematic reading and instruction. Well, he didn't do that. He, he, he continues to gain wealth. But this is this what his biography says. He says, neither Rockefeller nor Ford nor Morgan could have written this note nor would they have understood the man who did that's a great comment i personally think that his his ethos was an overflow of his incredibly wonderful scott heritage that was filled with biblical instruction but that's beside the point his biography goes on and says this this man who gave untold money to charities who who built 2059 libraries comment on this listen andrew carnegie knew that that money was an idol in his heart but he did not know how to ultimately root it out it can't be removed this is written by an evangelical it can't be removed only replaced it must be supplanted by the one who though rich became poor so that we might truly be rich Self-effort gets you only so far. What I'm saying is the ultimate idol diminishing must be the glory of Christ, the eternal God who is the ultimate expression of God. So just some statements very quickly. If I'm going to break idols, I must continually see 
the glory and wonder and beauty of Christ. First Thessalonians. It says to the church, verse 1, you are in God the Father and you are in Christ Jesus and because of that you have grace and peace in your lives. He says you receive this word with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. He says you, you, you verse 9 says you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God who has no beginning, he has no end, he is God. And so I've got to continually see the beauty and glory of Christ. Example, life's disappointments. This past week, we celebrated a really crummy holiday, Valentine's Day. Now, some of you say, yes, crummy, because I'm married to the most unromantic person in the world. But I I say it's crummy in this regard. There there are are people, there'll be worse than me today, who last month they were dating the person they thought, might be their life partner, and they broke up two weeks ago. Valentine's Day hits. It's a crummy holiday. There are are people who buried their spouses the last two or three years. Valentine's Day hurts. There are others who are older, and they they, they want a date, and they want to be married, but right now the Lord has said no, and it hurts. So what do you do when that crushing hurt hits you? You go to the one who's the ultimate father to his people, the ultimate husband to his people. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's a commentary here that says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present the church to himself as a radiant bride without any stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. See, say, Lord, Lord I, I, I come to you the ultimate shepherd of my soul. No idol. You're God. How about another really crummy holiday, Mother's Day? Sometimes I think we're incredibly insensitive at Mother's Day. The oldest mother stands up, the youngest mother the mother with the most children stand up. The mother who wished she didn't have children stand up. And that type of thing, you know. And so we just, you know, we celebrate, we have it, and we see, you know, and then, and then you, and then you're, the first service I was sitting back there where Jim is, and this family came in, four stepchildren, giggling, all happy. And, and how about, how about the families, the couples who cannot have children? How about the family who has a 25-year-old and they're in some halfway house, they hope, somewhere with needle marks in their arm because of addiction? How about those who bury children? It's a crummy holiday. So what do you do? What, what do you do? You go to the Bible and you say, Lord, you say in Romans 8 that I get to call you Abba, Father, by the Holy Spirit, dear Father. So on this day when there's so much hurt and pain, I, I want to enthrone you as Abba, Father. You love orphans and widows, and that's me. How about another holiday? Christmas and Thanksgiving. You know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Not really. A lot of people go home to families where by lunch on Christmas, half the people are drunk. 
and there's anger, there's frustration, there are buried secrets, there are skeletons all over the place, quite frankly. If your company offered you a job in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, you would take it tomorrow just to get out of this family system. What what do you do? You you, you say, you know, Lord, you've called me into your family. And my ultimate identity is not my ethnicity. It is not my zip code. It is not my last name. I'm a child of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross for me. I want to live there. That's what you do. You, You don't let these things run over you. You see, you, you do it. And, and also, very quickly, my time is gone. You need to realize that repenting and rejoicing always go together. You need to taste the sweetness of Christ. Always goes together. Not, not a fear-based repentance, but a worship-based repentance. I want to get rid of this stuff because I want to see the goodness of Christ. I want to get rid of this stuff. I want to see Christ. And then thirdly, I just put down here that, that you're called to serve. The text says, serve the living and true God. To serve Him. You've been called to serve. What a glory to serve Him and His purposes to be involved in kingdom living. You serve the living and true God. It is about stewardship of life. We, we all deal with this stuff. Idols. And usually, the idols are good. That's, that's, that's the hard thing. Our call is to seek first the kingdom. Our call is to taste and see the goodness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray now and we ask that uh, you would raise up many, 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 many people in this generation and the next who understand the absolute glory of the cross. And uh, that Lord, we would be transfixed by the wonder of Christ. And uh, Lord, uh, every person here deals with this issue. And that's why John closes this letter. My dear brothers and friends, children, keep yourself from idols because... We, like the elders in Ezekiel 14, make idols in our hearts. And we have to deal with it. So, Lord, um, please, please, please get the glory um, in in our lives, I pray. Let us see the wonder of Christ. I pray for for family units. I pray for single people. I pray for folks that are engaged. uh, I pray for young children. Lord, I, I just pray that we would see... And and taste the goodness of Christ in whose name I pray. Amen.